And I remind doctors, especially my doctors who are very high producers on the revenue side, you generate two plus million dollars in revenue and the hospital's paying you $220,000 a year. Do you feel like you could ask for another 30 or 40 K? You know, would that be a reasonable exchange for the value that you provide? And the answer is yes. Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia and Pain Management Success Podcast. With APM Success, we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. We work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to episode 146 of Anesthesia Pain Management Success. Today, I'm very pleased to be joined by Ethan Inkana, who is has a really interesting and diverse background. He's the founder of Rocky Mountain Physician Agency. He is a master of business administration and a doctor of jurisprudence. So he uses his business and legal skills and leverages them on behalf of physicians to help them negotiate better contracts. Listeners of this show will know that this is a topic near and dear to my heart. Check out last week's episode on LOIs. If you missed it, episode 145, Ethan, thanks for joining us. Yeah, I'm so excited to be here with you, Justin. First and foremost, I need you to introduce me all the time. That was awesome. That made me sound really professional. So whatever you just said, I'm jotting that down. I'm going to use that for every presentation I do. Well, fortunately, it was recorded. I appreciate your time today, Ethan. For starters, why don't you uh, give us a little bit of your background and kind of what landed you where you are today? Yeah, by, by background, I'm a lawyer by training. Um, don't hold that against me. <laughs> I also have my, my MBA. Uh, but really, the, the reason that I'm in the business that I'm in is because I spent 15 years working in hospitals. And I started as an HR intern making 12 bucks an hour out in LA. And, you know, eventually worked my way up to do strategy, finance, legal, everything in a hospital that is done behind the scenes, I've done it or, or I know it. And so about three years ago, just shy of three years, I started my firm, Rocky Mountain Physician Agency, which is very similar just into a talent agency or a sports management agency in that my job is to get my clients the best jobs for the most amount of money. And in this case, my clients are doctors instead of professional athletes and actors. I'm really fortunate. My mother's a physician. And so my work is, is near and dear to my heart. And it's a way for me to kind of stay in the family business, not having the skill set my mom does. So I'm curious, having a handful of years on the other side of the table, take doctors behind the curtain there. And what are the conversations like? What kinds of things are looked at in negotiating physician contracts from the, uh, you know, from the hospital side? Yeah, the hospital is thinking about how can we secure the patients in our community? How can we grow our revenue? And the way you grow revenues by growing your patient volume, procedures, emergency room visits, et cetera. And so hospitals are always thinking about how can they improve their clinical quality and patient outcomes, as well as their business, right? Just like any business wants to increase revenue. And so the most common mistake I see doctors make from when I was on that side of the table, and I tell a physician, I was with the UCLA OBGYN fellows on Monday, and I shared with them the, the mistake that many physicians make coming into those contract discussions, and I've seen it firsthand many, many times, is they'll say, 
you know, my student loans are out of control. My mortgage is insane. I have alimony or, you know, child support. And frankly, those reasons mean nothing to a hospital executive. And so I've seen physicians leave the room and then the CEO or executive is kind of giving them a hard time because the doctor has no idea how to ask for the value that they deserve. And so what I do is I help use the language that the suits understand and that we use on that side of the table to give doctors an even playing field. So now when Dr. Smith is asking for a raise of $50,000, he's using the language that hospital executives understand to negotiate for that value, which he, which he deserves. That's great intel. What other things have you seen as far as the conversations among executives or HR people or, or the contract folks as it relates to Dr. Smith is asking for XYZ? you know, what, what, and what that means to the hospital. Yeah. If I could give you kind of the biggest open secret for healthcare executives, especially those uh, who are responsible for growing the business of the hospital. Uh, and I have a buddy who works on that side still. And, and I asked him, I said, how do you think about doctors, especially those who are coming out of training? And he said, we think about them in three ways. We want to get them as busy as possible as fast as possible for as cheap as possible. And so if doctors go into the conversation with that context, they would then say, hey, the first offer they gave me, yeah, it's four or five X my residency salary, but they're a business. So they're going to pay me as little as possible starting out. And so it's important for doctors to recognize what levers you can pull that influence the compensation that you can get. And, and frankly, like I said, doctors often say, it's their expenses or their lifestyle. It's like none of that stuff matters. There's six things. And I give that in my residency presentation. There's six things that hospital execs care about. And if you're not talking about those six things, you're going to get locked out of the room, frankly. Very interesting. So for listeners, this is episode 146. So if you go to apmsuccess.com slash 146, we're going to link to some resources today that Ethan is going to reference in the context of this discussion. Last week for episode 145, I talked about the use of a letter of intent, an LOI, which is something that I've seen frequently, especially with the bigger institutions, to essentially have a, an agreement in principle between two parties, which is useful in some ways for some purposes. But I see that this usually works against the doctor. It's obviously better to get the actual agreement in your hands and then negotiate that actual agreement rather than saying, yeah, I essentially, I'm going to give away all of my ability to negotiate by agreeing in principle. And then you get the actual employment agreement. And maybe some of the stuff is what you expected and some of it you didn't. But physicians, in my observation, are so conscientious, so like honor bound by, oh, I said I was going to do it. When you sign the LOI, you basically are taking whatever that is behind door number two that you haven't even seen yet. So I'm curious, as it relates to LOIs and the way that you think about them and understand them and has seen them utilized, what is your sort of response or reaction or the way that you interpret that? Yeah, I think your instinct is, is fair and reasonable, Justin. I would say that LOIs tend to benefit the hospital or the employer, not necessarily the doctor. And so, you know, there's kind of this, I'm going to contradict myself as I'm explaining this, but I think you'll appreciate why. So first and foremost, an LOI does not bind you beyond what's on that paper, right? So if a doctor signs an LOI and then says, you know what, I want to go play for another team, you can do that. And there's no legal recourse that you are subjecting yourself to. An LOI does not commit you to anything beyond 
considering this option, right? So on one hand, it doesn't have a ton of power. But on the second hand, and this is where the contradiction comes in, when something is in your LOI, and you were alluding to this, Justin, when something's in your LOI, that's typically what you're going to see in your contract. And so if you say, for instance, if you if your salary should be 250, you've done your research, you've gone to MGMA, Doximity, Medscape, all of these places, and 250 is the salary that you should be paid. If your LOI says 200 and you say, you know what, it's non-binding, I'll take care of it when I see the agreement. If you sign that LOI, your salary is going to be the salary you saw in the, in the LOI. So it's not going to bind you legally, but it will restrict your ability to negotiate in the context of that contract discussion. So I think you raise a good point. It, it doesn't benefit the doctor necessarily. I'm trying to think of a way that it, it could. It doesn't necessarily benefit the doctor, but it does um, put onus on the doctor to negotiate those terms up front. So if you if your number is 250, then you need to tell the hospital, you know, your number is 260 to 275. So that way, when you get the employment agreement or the LOI, you know, you've got a, a number within your range there. Yeah, really and good one, point. That's a good question. We don't talk much. One of the, about this. I'm sorry. One of the things that I've seen, I'm curious in your response to this, is that there's many intangibles, many qualitatives that have quantitative impact. Like, for example, intellectual property, ability to moonlight, ability to do locums, ability to participate in outside businesses. Uh, that are not necessarily, they're certainly outside of the scope of the LOI most of the time. And maybe you agree to the salary number because that's the big thing everyone's worried about is what is my number? But there are so many other mm -hmm. variables that are significant determinants of your wealth building capacity. If you get your number, but then you get 17 other things, you know, do you owe tail premium? What does the non-compete radius look like? Yeah. These other things that are very stringent, then maybe your number getting your number doesn't feel quite as good because you're giving away everything else and you didn't see anything else until you saw the actual employment agreement. Yeah, you're, you're spot on. I often tell doctors there's three main components to your compensation or value in your contract. There's your base, your bonus, and your bennies. Your base is the value that you get just for showing up and doing a good job causing no harm, right? Your bonus is what you get for taking some action or accomplishing a task. It can be something as simple as signing your contract and you get a signing or retention bonus or something as involved as helping the hospital improve its surgical site infection rate or something like that. But the third B, Benny's, also known as benefits, I, I expand this to include non-monetary value in your contract. So things like your paid time off, your 401k, the match rate, your restrictive covenants, any payment for non-productive time or administrative time. And you know, you mentioned a lot of those things that have a huge impact on a doctor's life. But like you said, the sexy thing is the big number, right? What's that six-figure number for my salary? But I often tell doctors just because the number is nice doesn't mean, I, and I'm actually, I'm going through this right now with a, with one of my clients where just because the number is nice and it's really nice, um, you do have to be mindful about your risk professionally, because as you mentioned, you know, some doctors don't want their time outside of my job to be restricted. And so you need to make sure that your contract doesn't unduly limit what you can do outside the scope of your employment. Absolutely. Are there any other things that, as you've been party to these conversations on the hospital side, that you think doctors would be surprised or interested 
to to hear or to see that they perhaps are not privy to at baseline? Yeah, I think the thing that I would say that I don't think doctors understand or believe today is you can get a raise today. You can get a raise today. And I give doctors the playbook, whether or not you work with me or you decide to take a DIY approach, you can get a raise today. And the reason the, the reason I say that is because doctors often think, well, you know, I'm I'm paid enough or my contract's been up for two years. It doesn't matter. What matters is you have value as a physician because of the expertise that you have. And if you come to your employer and you believe that your compensation or your contract doesn't align with the market, have that conversation now. Don't endure a miserable contract for longer than you have to. Let's get it fixed now. And just to give you a quick illustration, I just got a couple of doctors out of a contract that was horrible. It was not in their best interest. They were underpaid by nearly six figures. And so we went back to their employer, said, hey, we'd like to renegotiate. Employer said, not interested, right? So my job then is, okay, cool. Let's see if your competitors are interested. And spoiler alert, they usually are. And so now your employer has to come back and say, okay, hold on, let's let's see what we can do, right? And now they're making an adjustment to the doctor's compensation immediately, right? And I and look, that's a lot of work. It takes time. You have to have the data and you have to know how to do it. So yes, a doctor can do it, but I think the, the smartest doctors tend to hire me and say, Ethan, you do it for me. So that brings up a great point. Strengthening one's negotiation via leverage in as many different ways as possible. So obviously having a good second alternative, uh, Babatna, as it's known. There you go. Negotiation parlance strengthens one's position because if you can walk away and get a better deal, then if that institution is interested in keeping you, they're going to be more motivated. So talk about how you think about leverage, how you encourage physicians to you know, consider the different options that they have for strengthening a negotiating position. I would imagine a lot of doctors for the uninitiated physician going to their overlords and saying, hey, I want a better deal. If they say, get back in your chair, buck <laughs> uh, a doctor would probably, you know, again, at baseline, be inclined to just say, okay, sorry. But how do you try to reframe the discussion for doctors to be a little more emboldened? Yeah, great question. That's such a good question. You know, I often remind doctors of their power in the market as a hospital executive, I have a keen understanding of how valuable doctors are to the organization, right? In, in dollars and cents. And so when I talk to doctors, one of the things, and we'll put this in the show notes, but one of the things that I often tell them is don't look at your salary in a vacuum, right? In this conversation, we've talked about salary. What we haven't talked about is the revenue that those doctors generate for their hospitals, just like any business, a business generates revenue and has expenses. The doctor's salary is on the expense side of the income statement, but the impact of the work they do is on the revenue side. And I remind doctors, especially my doctors who are very high producers on the revenue side, you generate two plus million dollars in revenue and the hospital's paying you $220,000 a year. Do you feel like you could ask for another 30 or 40K? You know, would that be a reasonable exchange for the value that you provide? And the answer is yes. But once they become aware of that, it's a no-brainer. But but often if I ask doctors, you know, do you know how much you generate? They may say, oh, you know, probably my salary or a million bucks. And it's 
That's not the answer. Most doctors of just about every specialty generate more than a million and a half dollars in revenue um, up to about three for their hospitals. And, and no doctors on a base salary basis are making $3 million. So they're generating far more than the expense that they're incurring. Talk and that's the about- first thing that I, I tell them. And sorry, Justin, you, you asked yeah. me about the leverage. I'll give you three pieces of leverage in order of magnitude. Yeah. So the first is find your buddies, right? If you and your buddies band together, there's strength in numbers. Right. I just had a negotiation with OBGYNs who were individuals, but they, as a group, said, we want to negotiate together. We got them $1.1 million in annual salaries, additional to what they're already making, right? Because there's power in numbers. Secondarily, it's having a second offer. So if you can generate another offer from a competitor in the community, now your hospital has to do one of two things at least one or two things. Either they let you walk and that revenue walks with you, or they make a modest change to your compensation. That's a fraction of the value that you provide and you stay under new terms. And so my job is to help you, one, identify those additional offers, help you negotiate a better deal somewhere else. And then your employer has to step up to the plate or you walk. And then thirdly, it's having the data. So let's say you're not interested in finding another offer or you can't, and you're not willing to call me, then what you need to do is go get the data and say, okay, my salary is 250. The data says that my salary should be between 275 and 325. And then you present that to your employer and say, this is what fair market value is for my specialty. Help me understand the gap between my current salary and what other physicians of my skill set are making. Right. And then you compel them to make a change based on what the data says. Yeah. I love letting the data talk. And when you're exactly. negotiating with a reasonable counterparty, it does have some impact. Uh, you, you hope that it is impactful. <laughs> but the reason I mentioned that third, Justin, is because it's while it is impactful, the other two approaches are more impactful. And so you're going to get a lot more attention if you are willing to make a move. But, you know, there's some docs who say, I love my hospital. I love my employer, my bosses, not willing to make a change, but I want to at least try. That's how you try is you bring in the data and you hope that they're willing to recognize the disparity there. But like you said, uh, the key word being a reasonable partner in the discussion I think you bring up a good point that I want to touch on briefly, and then I want to have a couple other questions here. The The way that you communicate to other parties in the ecosystem, even on an ongoing, even if you're not negotiating, there's no active, you know, trying to position for a better deal. The way that you communicate on an ongoing basis, you know, I think being cognizant of that, the, the tone and the words and being measured, <laughs> being honest and grateful but not effusive. <laughs> yes. And like, if you think you got the best deal ever and you're absolutely loving everything, if you're letting everybody know that all the time, you're never going to be able to improve your position. Whereas it's great to be grateful and to express gratitude. And I'm a big fan of that. I think it actually objectively makes your life better because of the impact that it has on your own, the way you see the world. But you want to just think about how do you express that in a way that doesn't you know, undermine your future efforts to perhaps continue to enjoy fair market value for your services, shall we say? 
Love that. So something I, to think about for listeners out there. Yeah, I can tell that you know what you're talking about and have deep experience in this field. And I often tell, I told the UCLA residents on Monday, I said, look, this is how you talk all the time, right? You don't, you know, I hear doctors often say, no, it's okay. I'm aggressive. I'm, I'm aggressive. I can do that. It's like aggressiveness has nothing to do with it. You see that in the movies. I'm never aggressive in my discussions about someone's contract. Uh, you, you attract more, I don't know why they say flies, but you attract more flies with honey than you do with, with vinegar, right? But the point being that when you're having a discussion about your contract, it's just that, a discussion. And so two things that I always tell my doctors um, when they go into these contracts, the first thing is exactly what you just said, Justin. It's, you know what, be gracious. Hey, really appreciate the offer. I'm looking forward to reviewing this and talking it over with my family, right? So first and foremost, be be gracious, but advocate for yourself, right? Say, hey, I want to take the time to review this. And then the second thing is when you when you get those contracts, you are talking just like we're talking now, right? And you say, let's continue the conversation. You never go into it saying, give me this money or I'm going to walk. Say, hey, really appreciate the offer. Then when you come back, you say, hey, I had some time to think about it. Look at the data. It looks like the market is about here. I'm wondering if you might be willing to consider that, right? And that's the tone, right? And we just got a million bucks. So if someone's telling me that my tone and my approach is wrong, then I'm happy to be wrong, right? But this this is how you talk. This is how you communicate. And I always tell doctors, and and of course, you know this, Justin, if you know Batna, I always tell doctors, it is you and the other party against the problem you're trying to solve, right? They want to find a doctor at the right price who can care for their patients. And you want to find an employer at the right price who can help sustain your practice, right? And so you're mutually trying to solve this problem together from different perspectives, but together. You mentioned something at the very beginning that hospital executives are interested in, and everyone is interested in this at the end of the day, which is what we would call quality, which means a lot of different things to different people, but the outcomes that you experience as a physician, basically how much better are you than average, if in fact you are better than average. So I'm curious, as you think about quality and using that as a way to strengthen your negotiating position with a client of yours, for example, how are you helping a physician sort of examine their own quality metrics and how are you introducing that facet of the discussion with a counterparty? Yeah, great question. So we, we did this yesterday with a, with a negotiation we're working on where, and this is a hematology oncology physician in the, on the East coast. So for her, what we're working on is the, the practice that she's affiliated with says, Hey, we really want you to participate in our quality improvement initiatives, our clinical outcome, improvement programs. And the doctor says, I'm happy to participate in that because she's a good doctor, right? And so what I say is, in my 15 years of experience, I know that doctors get compensated for helping hospitals improve clinical quality outcomes. And the reason for that is because hospitals are evaluated on clinical quality outcomes, right? So they have an incentive to keep those numbers high. That's how they get those leapfrog grades and all of these other things and and certifications and accreditations. And as a result of that, they encourage physicians who have, spoiler alert, they have a huge impact on clinical quality outcomes of a hospital. And so they found that if they incentivize doctors to focus on these specific clinical targets and outcomes, they can improve those. 
And so I often say for any of my doctors where this might be a consideration, I say you should be getting twelve to $15,000 a year for participating in clinical quality improvement programs. Did you have a moment, Ethan, when you thought, you know, I want to sit on the other side of this negotiating table? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I had a moment. It was it was kind of an epiphany, Justin, where I was sitting I was I was getting a massage. I was sitting in this, you know, some chain restaurant for a massage. And on the table, there was uh, we have a magazine here in Denver called 5280. And that stands for 5280 a mile. And that's how high we are. So I saw this magazine on the front of it. It said top doctors 2019 or whatever, whatever year it was at the time. And I remember thinking, man, I wonder how much those doctors make. I wonder how much if they know how much they should be making. And then that kind of spiraled into why don't doctors have agents like athletes? They follow the same life cycle where they spend 20, 25 years head down training, becoming elite at this skill set. Then they go pro for doctors. You finish residency, you make a bunch of money and you have nobody to help you negotiate that athletes have wised up and gotten agents. And so I realized doctors probably need agents as well. And so, you know, there really wasn't a specific catalyst as much as it was just an awakening that, man, doctors are in a really vulnerable position where they receive no training at any point in their career to help them understand, one, how much they should be making, and two, how they effectively go get that, right? And so I've spent the last two and a half years with, you know, probably 25 residency programs helping educate their residents and fellows on how do you be successful when you go into your contract negotiation? You know, I don't want you to need me. I don't want to be needed. I want to work myself out of a job. I want you as a physician to be so good at your job that I am not needed. Maybe they need to also follow the athletes' examples of uh, unionization. I had a call with someone about this the other day, and I said, if if doctors unionize, I did it. That is the the goal here, Justin. Like, if doctors unionize, the world would be their oyster. Yeah, it's just part of this complicated, you know, interconnected, interdependent ecosystem that's like, you kind of hate the fact that that is even something that we need to talk about. And yet, and yet. And yet. Uh, that's a, that's a perhaps a separate conversation. <laughs> Indeed it is. So, you know, I'm curious uh, that we have, and please don't take offense to this, but some financial advisors have a running joke that if you, uh, if you ask a lawyer, if you need a lawyer, the answer is always yes especially in areas outside of the expertise of the client or the advisor, for example. So one of the concerns I might have if I was a doctor and thinking about talking to a, you know, someone like yourself is that I'm going to be viewed as, um, you know, I'm, I'm calling the bruiser, you know, to come to the table and bring their brass knuckles and advocate for me, the doctor, in a way that is, I mean, I have no idea what's going to happen in there, in that room. Like, can I really trust someone like Ethan to go in and advocate, but be diplomatic so talk a little bit about how you sort of address that fear or that challenge that a doctor might have. Yeah, I think first and foremost, just through our interactions, doctors see me, they know me, and they know that I'm purely motivated for their success. And I think one of the primary differences between what I do and from what an attorney does is, let's just say if you're a doctor and you bring an attorney a contract 
and say, hey, review this for me. An attorney is going to dip into their legal expertise and provide you with recommendations based on where you're exposed to legal risk. They may look at your compensation, but once those changes or or the amended contract goes back to the employer, if the employer says not interested, you've now paid hourly an hourly rate four, five, six hundred dollars, and all of these changes have been made, but you haven't made any progress, right? Like the employer just summarily said no to all of the changes. And then what's your next move? You accept the contract that you're not happy with, right? And so the work that I do is is materially different in two ways. First and foremost, you don't pay me hourly, right? So there's a small retainer up front. And I say small because it's a nominal amount, just so that we both have skin in the game. And the doctor gets it back at the end. And then my fee is very similar to, and I'll I'll actually kind of borrow from attorneys here, but it's similar to those cheesy uh, personal injury attorneys who say, we don't get paid unless you get paid. That's how it works. Like I don't get paid if I don't make you more money, right? And so now the risk associated with spending a bunch of you know money on my hourly rate is mitigated because you're not going to pay me anything unless I win for you, right? I mean, winning means make you more money. The second thing that I think is important is when you hit that stalemate with an attorney, you're you're kind of at an impasse, right? Either the employer has to make a move or you as the employee have to say, I'm just not going to sign that and cross your arms, right? What I do is I bring additional leverage into the conversation for you. So I'll use the OBGYNs I was just telling you about a moment ago. Six OBGYNs, they told me their two priorities were One, we want to stay together. And two, we want to stay at the hospital we're currently at. I said, okay, I got you. So what I did was I went to their employer and said, hey, these doctors would like to make more money. I recognize that you've talked to their attorney. I'm just sharing the message that they've asked me to share. Employer predictably says, not interested. I said, great. I thought you might say that. Just so you know, we're having conversations with a few of our colleagues around town and the doctors are going to explore their options, right? And so now what I do is I go talk to your competitors across the street and I say, hey, I had these amazing physicians who are open to a new opportunity. Are you interested? Everyone says, yes, we're interested. Now I've got you four offers. Now when I come back to your employer and said, hey, I know you guys weren't interested in paying them more money. I just want to let you know as professional courtesy, they're considering an offer for 20% more across the street. Employer says, well, they can't do that. They have a non-compete. Yeah, yeah, about that. The new employer is actually going to pay the non-compete penalty for them. So they don't have to worry about it. It's part of their package. Oh, okay. Well, we're not going to budge. This is real. This is real. So the next thing that happened is the a week before their contract expires, the CEO calls me at seven o'clock at night and says, What number do we got to hit? And I just, Justin, I said the biggest number I could say without getting laughed off the phone. And that's what they got, right? So yes, there is a process to it and it takes time and you have to kind of know the ins and outs of the the market to do that. But the fact of the matter is once an employer says not interested, that's my cue to go to work, right? but, But for an attorney, that might be the point where they're like, okay, well, sorry, not sure what what we do here. And I say that respectfully, right? That's just not part of their job description. Yeah. But for me, when we hit that impasse, that's that's where I 
that's where I get to shine, right? Because now I'm going to go get you offers. They're going to be more lucrative than what you have right now. And they're going to pay your penalty in case you have a non-compete restriction that you have to work around. That's an incredible story. Thanks for sharing that. One of the questions that I'm always interested in hearing different perspectives on is the, sort of the macro and micro implications of the jobs that both you and I do at a macro level in terms of like physician autonomy and what we would call private practice in the classic sense, like doctors being business owners and owning a piece of the profits generated by their medical labors and skills. You know, there's, there's a lot of bad press, we'll say, that it's dying. Private practice is going the way of the dinosaurs. On one level, I kind of don't care because for the private practitioners with whom I'm engaged and for whom I advocate, macro trends are just that. And it tells us a little bit about what's going on out there, but it doesn't change the way that I act on a day-to-day basis. However, being able to read the tea leaves and understand the environment in which we function, I think is part of being a well-informed professional. So I'm curious if you are as bearish as a negative on the sort of private practice outlook as some of the headlines portend or, or what you're seeing and how you interpret sort of where we're at right now as it relates to physicians and their businesses and the autonomy and agency they have in the practice of medicine? Yeah, that's a really thoughtful question. I think about this all the time because I really am fascinated by, like you said, the market and kind of where it's going and where it's been, frankly. And so, yeah, I, I think there's certainly a trend at a high level to see more doctors going the route of employment. And, you know, it's just, it's natural. Like it's harder to run a business today. It's expensive and hospitals are making it easier to be an employee and affiliated with, with a partner. I think so. So while, yes, I believe that to be true, I think there are hybrid models that exist between employment and private practice that are just not as widely publicized as they could be for doctors, which is a good way to maintain some of that autonomy while making having the support and resources you need to run a business successfully. So I think about management service organizations or MSOs, very, very heavy in the pain management and anesthesia space. I also think about private equity. And I say that respectfully. I know private equity sometimes gets a bad rap when it comes to the medical space, but I don't think it's all bad. I think that there are things that they can do to help doctors who want to focus on clinical practice improve their operational structure and organization and allow them to focus on providing clinical care to patients. It's not for everybody. You know, it's, it is an ownership model typically where you have equity and they are looking to optimize, which means you're going to probably sell and try to sell on a multiple. So yeah, I, I do see trends that just like you observed that private practice is kind of becoming less and less prominent within the the practice of medicine. At the same time, I don't know if it's just this mass exodus to employment. I think that there's some new middle ground for physicians that allows them some latitude. And and actually, I'll give you a quick example. I have a doctor in New Jersey. She's an interventional cardiologist. She's getting ready to buy. She's currently employed. She's going to buy a private practice. So she'll then be private practice. And then we're going to affiliate her with a hospital via a a PSA or what's called a provider service agreement, right? So she'll still be autonomous as a private practice physician. She'll practice when she wants, how she wants, with whom she wants. 
the hospital with whom she's affiliated is going to subsidize the expenses of her practice 100% so that she doesn't have to worry about the day-to-day business operations of the practice and really focus on providing high-quality clinical care. So I think that there's a few different options now that didn't exist 15, 30 years ago. But yeah, you do tend to see fewer physicians in the more traditional private practice setting than we did before. Yeah, the PSA angle is something I'm hearing more and more about. I need to do an episode on that pretty soon because I think that is an interesting iteration of uh, yeah the the employment arrangement. And there's a few different models of PSAs too. So you know, I'm sure there's a bunch of experts you know, but I'd be happy to come talk with you about it. But PSAs are really interesting because there's I, like I said, like there's that 100% PSA. Then there's like a hybrid PSA where maybe the hospital just subsidizes your support staff or your um, operational staff and not the physician, right? Which creates some additional autonomy for the physician. So anyway, I could talk about that all day, but there's definitely some, I think, interesting perks to being a physician who's affiliated and not fully employed. But likewise, there's perks being employed. Ethan, if people want to learn more about you and your services, where can they do that? Yeah, I'd say the best place is social media. I post pretty frequently tips, tricks, things doctors should know, peek behind the curtain for doctors on things that they can do to be successful. Like I said, I I want doctors to be successful irrespective of my support, but my socials are first. So Rocky Mountain Physician Agency on Instagram, on LinkedIn. I also have a website, rrobertmarypauladamrmpa.co. They can check out my background there. And then also on YouTube, we're starting to put out a lot of videos on YouTube. And so you can always check me out by just Googling my name or putting my name into YouTube. Well, Ethan and Connor, thank you very much for joining us today on APM Success. It's been a pleasure. The pleasure has been all mine. Thank you, Justin. If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to apmsuccess.com where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesia and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I'd also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on APM Success.